Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. Yeah, it's recording. According to my system, it is as well. Right then. Hello and welcome to... Hello and... (laughs) Hello and welcome to episode 74 of Bilge Pumps. Finally recording it. This will come out this week, and then episode 75 will come out next week, and that is going to be us t- signing off for the year. We're going to have a bit of a holiday, because Jamie has children who need to be entertained by their papa. Drac has many, many Christmas lights to put up, and I have to turn my house into a beacon for the aliens who are coming to take me away. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my my only con- my only concession to December it will be the festive flat cannon. That is good. My concession to December will be somewhere in the region of two and a half to three thousand lights around the outside of the house, and we're probably gonna that's going to be the beginning. Um, so, so, so it was you two, was it? I've just been watching um, <laughs> Apple TV's Invasion series, and uh, yeah, they, they showed this scene of London on fire. So it, it's it's. it's I mean, that's an ambition. It's you two. It's you two. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm reducing the carbon footprint of the UK by temporarily increasing it by setting the capital on fire. But then once it's burned out, they can't use any more power, so the carbon footprint goes down. It's a genius plan. Plus, it saves on central heating bills for me for the for the winter. Uh, anyway, my, my 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 festive flat cannon goes all the way back to my first office job where. They insisted on putting up all sorts of tinsel and baubles and those annoying little motorized Santa reindeer that do nothing other than fly around in a circle all day, um, all over the office. So I went. Those you are allowed to use the festive shotgun on. I long ago decided. (laughs) Well, I I I went and went and found a um, computer remote controlled eighty eight millimeter. I'm not sure. Be quiet. Sorry, that's Alexa. I went and found this remote controlled 88 millimeter flat cannon replica that shot BBs. Uh, and so in consideration of the season, I dusted it with some snow weathering powder and set it up on my desk. And that basically threatened that if they put any decorations up within a six foot radius of my desk, I would shoot them. Uh, well, now all you need to do is get the eight barreled version. Call it yes. <laughs> the festive pom pom. Mm hmm. I don't know. No, I do put up a lot of, well, the LED string light system I have. Mm-hmm. And um, this year it's going to include the office in the back garden, as well as the house. And um, my mum has actually formally requested that it not be so much inside the house, because this year she would like to have a Christmas lunch without feeling she needs to wear shades. Uh, right so um today's topic is submarines yes and torpedoes Mm -hmm. and f-35s pretending to be submarines or torpedoes depending on your perspective Which is rather appropriate for the year, but we're going to start off by we've had some more detail come out about the metallurgist lab director on the US. And it um, 
It's worse Honestly, than it actually seemed before. It gets worse. And uh, me and Jamie could, at this point, probably sign off for the next 20 minutes and just let Drac <laughs> have a full rant. But we are going to actually attempt to interject at some point in during the rants. But um, do you want to count him in, Jamie, or shall I? Um, three, two, one, rant. rant. <laughs> okay, so... You may recall from a previous episode of Builder Fronts when the first details of this particular individual were coming out, the indications at that point were that she had falsified low temperature tests of steel that was going into US submarines. And I went over at that point at fairly extensive length why this was a terrible and awful idea and why just deciding arbitrarily that these tests were stupid and shouldn't be done probably reflects questions as to how on earth she got her engineering degree in the first place because um you know anyone with a half decent a level of materials engineering knowledge would know exactly why those tests are being done however it appears that the issues are in fact far worse than that because as we mentioned at the time if you had falsified tests because you just couldn't be bothered to do them that would be bad enough but at least in theory most of the steel probably would have met spec you might have had a few ticking time bombs out there that didn't and you wouldn't know which ones they were which would obviously be bad but you weren't at major risk of you know losing substantial portions of your fleet or having to make significant alterations to take that into account however According to the latest filings in the case, the the, the story has changed somewhat. So now um, there's apparently a company called Bradkin Incorporated, uh, which has a foundry in Tacoma, which is the supplier of the steel castings that were being tested. And... Uh, it seems that the reason that the tests were falsified by the engineering question was not, well, possibly she also thought the tests were stupid, but apparently that was not the dri- main driving point. Um, the main driving point seems to have been that most of their castings actually failed the lab tests and didn't meet Navy standards. And this particular engineer falsified the test results specifically to hide the fact that it was failing the tests. Um, Which, given you're talking about several hundred steel casting productions over 30 years or so, that's an awful lot of steel that is now not question mark will it fail, it's definite mark we know it failed except it's now also installed on our submarines which is not a good place to be in does that mean australia can get them cheap (laughs) um well as long as you promise not to take them anywhere near the antarctic (laughs) Uh, Uh, it's a case of not even the antarctic do you want to take them deep down well you don't have the water the water gets quite cold going deep. Well, you don't have HMAS Melbourne anymore, so you don't have to worry about them being run over. Um, but that's American destroyers. Yeah, true. <laughs> but you know, being ex-American, it may have had a scent for them. 
um but yeah it's yeah it's it's not a good situation to be in about the only silver cloud so the silver lining to this particular cloud is at least now you know a bunch of your subs are defective and you can take measures as opposed to well maybe one or two of them are um the the thing that really is somewhat annoying is that whilst yes this engine is probably going to face a fair stint in prison and a fairly hefty fine on an individual basis and the foundry is also going to be ending ending up being fine because they knowingly produced sub substandard steel according to the uh news release the sum total of all possible fines is going to come in at just under 12 million dollars one million of which is the potential maximum fine for the engineer and just under 11 million is civil settlement from the company now petty, that's a petty cash yeah that's a lot of money for a person but if you've got dozens of submarines <laughs> a monopoly on the uh, yeah the, the the u.s submarine construction sphere yeah if you've now got dozens of ships and subs out there that have potentially faulty steel and you're going to have to take remedial measures on all of them i'm afraid that's gonna add up to a fair bit more than 12 million dollars um yeah, honestly talking billions yes yeah, well, because this is of billions because this is this isn't just a case of you know slap a, a patch on it or replace a component you can't replace a major casting on a submarine once it's midlife i mean in theory you could but at that point you'd be tearing down so much of the submarine un or cutting it apart and rewelding it you might as well just build a new one um so th this is going to have to be work and structural work in addition to what's already there which is going to possibly slightly affect the performance because you do have a bit more additional dead weight in the sub. So um, if they if they had any plans of a service life extension in order to keep the US Navy's submarine fleet up in proportion to the, um, shall we say, Russian and Chinese fleets, it's not likely to happen. Yeah, it's either it's not likely to happen or it's, or it's going to take massively more cost than they thought because some of these subs may be reach now reaching you know hot assuming that even assuming that the uh issues with the steel aren't sufficient to bring them in for immediate repairs which some of them probably will you're going to be talking about midlife repairs and if they do want to extend the service lives their whole lives may be over even before their expected whole lives so you're going to be talking about an awful lot more expense cost and say slight reduction in capabilities and even with what measures you can put in at best you're patching a problem you're not going to entirely fix it so you'll be talking about spending an awful lot of money to kind of just paper over some of the worst of the issues it's it's not something that's got an easy or cheap solution in any way shape or form i, I don't know maybe you could just install heaters near the um the cast <laughs> One of the I'm sitting here thinking about this, and these are the figures. It's over 30 years, and you think about how many submarines have been produced in over 30 years, and it's over 240 productions of steel. We're talking at that point about potentially the entire run of Virginia's, the Seawolves, some of the later Ohio's. I don't know when the last to Los Angeles was produced. They they may be in the it's clear, but then again, they're going to include them as well. Then again, the, the Los Angeles are not long for this world anyway. 
the the thing is, the reality is, Jamie, and that I can see it affecting not just a proportion of American submarines, but every single submarine currently in service. This was the leading supplier of steel. This wasn't a small boundary and certain castings. This was a leading supplier of what were supposed to be critical components. This is, well, in in Britain, this is the point at which you'd possibly be getting a last cigarette up against the wall and maybe the the corgis would be manning the guns because it has got that bad, (laughs) let alone the actual guards. Um, It's... that's sort of slight humour, but this is this is not good. This is something which is I I would say it's treasonous, honestly. But that's well, who knows? Really those, what those Americans do. Yeah, well. Who knows? That might yet come out of it a charge like that. It's... So it appears that the last the last few Los Angeles class do just about fall into the thirty year bracket. Um. So, I mean, we're in 2021, so uh, if we're talking about, yeah, ships ships of the Los Angeles class laid down from 1990 onwards, because let's face it, there are some long lead items involved. Um, Well, actually, 1990 only contains a single vessel. So from 1991, so exactly 30 years ago, you've got everything from Columbus up to Cheyenne. So that's... SSN 762 up to 773. So that's 11, 11 of the Los Angeles class, plus to say all the Seawolves and Virginias potentially affected. Uh, yep. So the uh, secondhand sub sales yard has got some <laughs> real ripping bargains going hey? <laughs> for Australia. Yep. 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 There's, um... even, even, there's even uh, two or three of the Ohio's fall into this category. That, main, no, main Wyoming Jamie, and Louisiana laid down in the like that. You were not giving Australia an Ohio. You're not getting <laughs> well, an Ohio. Uh, well, you know, we can rip out the the missile launches and use it as a, um, you know, as an uh, orca carrier or something. Can make something that's actually a bit useful. Um, you can turn it into an SSGN. That's what I mean. Yeah, but make it make it something a bit more useful than just a plain old attack submarine. Attack submarines are a Cold War. Relic, chasing down other submarines. They're, they've got mm-hmm. other things to do now, and uh, they're also chasing down other submarines is nowhere near as easy as it used to be. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, not over, overall not a good situation to be in. Um, although I suspect that, well, one would hope that this will lead to somewhat stricter oversight of shipyard. Uh, well, foundry steel quality and and such like the material quality being provided going forward into the future, which you, you mean verified testing? Yes. Well, and and something more than just a self-administered code of conduct. Yeah, and I, I think I, I think this in part reflects, especially given some of the research I've been doing this week which has been going back into the early ironclad era, I think this reflects a one of the more unfortunate shifts in naval infrastructure and, and supply routes 
compared to old school stuff. So, you know, back in the 1860s, 1870s, and even as we all know, into the 1940s, when material was being supplied to the navies of various nations, especially the big ones, they had their own in-house testing. So if 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 a plate of armor or structural steel, etc., was being used, the Admiralty would pull samples of that from the construction to test to ensure that they were happy with the quality. I mean, they'd be doing testing of stuff coming straight out the factory as well, but overall randomized testing. And and, and those tests involved shooting a 15-inch shell at it. Yeah, at times, yes. <laughs> as well as more more um yeah, more standard environmental testing as well. But the point is that you know a navy inspector of quality usually has no particular motivation either way other than to you know come up with the actual accurate results whereas over time especially since world war ii more and more stuff has been outsourced because of course it's cheaper uh, i'm pretty sure that was his name fat was his name would have found a way um the guy behind all the corruption charges fat leonard that yeah, Leonard, that's right. He would have found a way to give to give them an incentive to <laughs> quite possibly. But I mean, they, they, I would point out the Royal Navy went for a period of dealing with various organisations in the twenties and thirties when this was the case. And I would argue the biggest loss for the Royal Navy in terms of quality control ships was getting rid of the Third Sea Lord, etc., and those things because the Third Sea Lord, their purpose was literally construction of the ships. And they knew that someday they could end up in command of those ships in a fleet. That's why the Third Sea Lord wasn't a senior admiral. That was specifically why the Royal Navy chose it was always a rear admiral or a vice admiral. It was someone who still had enough career left. They could end up in a war in charge of those fleets. (laughs) Yes, and it was a great incentive. And quality control, but especially the final system, was also handed off to officers who were the C, going to be the first engineer on the ship and the first executive officer on the ship would be on the ship as it was being finished. Like, currently we're doing with HMS Glasgow. Her crew has started to arrive on the ship already. She isn't even anywhere near finished. There's naval officers and naval personnel on her already going around that ship, looking at what's going on. And they might not be able to do the same level of testing, but if something looks iffy, they're going to say because their lives are going to depend on it. Mind you, that didn't exactly work with HMS Captain. Coles went no. aboard the ship and went down with it. When, when you're a little bit too overconfident in your in, in your own um, genius. Yeah, well, you know, some people do believe their own hype. But but no, I mean, in all seriousness, you know, this this is a case of you, you've outsourced the quality control and testing to the company that's making the objects that are being tested you know in theory from a purely bean counter economic perspective yes this makes perfect sense we'll get the company to do it you know we don't have to pay for it well actually you are you're just going to pay for it built into contract costs rather than just in in salary so it's a false economy to start with but also you know the people who are making the thing have a perverse incentive to ensure that magically everything passes the tests and then who ends up putting the bill? Well, the taxpayer. Mm-hmm. And the crews, I suspect. Yes. Yeah. Nervously looking at those castings every time exactly. they go deep. Mm. So, um, 
You know who I think should get the job of doing the testing for all these things? Mm -hmm. I think you should give the job of the testing to the company that fails. So the company which gets the contract, the lowest bid in the US system, they get to produce the seal. The company which got had the second lowest bid, they get to do the testing. <laughs> oh, that's probably not a bad idea, actually. <laughs> With the condition that if they can prove it false and doesn't work, they get the contract. <laughs> uh, yep, I think you might be onto something. But then again, it might end up being a, a bit like um, Amazon and um, uh, you know Microsoft and everyone else going for defense bids. They just end up suing each other in a big circle so that nothing ever happens. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, okay, so next yeah, up. Yeah, but there's an advantage to them suing each other and nothing ever happens. Mm, nothing ever happens. Well, if we consider how Microsoft Skype works for us and occasionally it breaks, perhaps Microsoft suing and being sued so they don't actually get involved in defense projects, which is a good <laughs> thing. <laughs> So, need some marines. Yeah. There is something going on at the Drac. <laughs> Sounds like there's a, a noisy something or another happening in the background there. <laughs> anyway, so. <laughs> New submarines. submarines, yes. Well, Yorka Steel is, of course, got off a lot of us thinking about the new submarines. And the US Navy is probably now thinking a lot about new submarines really a lot because also let's be honest that steel by the way which we talked about from um Brackton Inc these leading suppliers is probably involved in ships which are uh, boats which are currently being built true because we don't know when they found out about it and we don't know if they started it when they enforced those things so it could be there are boats which have yet to be launched uh, apparently, Drac is having solar panels installed, and they're just drilling the holes. So he is being kept quiet, but he is getting solar powered. We can all be worried about Drac with even less energy bills. Praise the sun. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so the US Senate is, of course, thinking about SSNX. And the first thing they announced about it is something that me and Drac think they were listening to us in episode 72 or something about, where we were complaining about they're going to be running out of torpedoes. And if you think reloading VLS on ships, surface ships is fun, try um, reloading torpedoes on a submarine at sea. It isn't going to happen. It just ain't. There ain't any option out there. The idea that you could have a moon pool big enough in the some sort of surface ship that a submarine could surface into and recharge itself and have uh, be reloaded with with torpedoes is a lovely dream, but it ain't going to happen. Although hilariously enough, reloading torpedoes in austere environments next to uh, resupply ships, you know, in a sheltered bay or something is something that can just about be done. Yeah. Which is hilarious because, you know, a torpedo is, as you say, is a considerably heavier and more bulky thing to load than a, a VLS missile, even something the size of an SM2. And yet reloading VLS tubes is still something that still has to be done in dedicated facilities, despite a few efforts to the contrary. Um, but I mean, it, 
Yeah, they seriously need to start bringing back those support ships, don't they? The, the tenders, mm -hmm. the um, submarine tenders, destroy it, destroy a tenders, submarine tenders. You know, the, yeah, it's it's a it's a yeah. one yeah, of those logistic it, it, things that, that isn't sexy, isn't it? It's the long war thinking again. It's thinking about what are we actually going to do in a war which lasts more than two weeks. Well, I, I, I think a lot of it... Well, yes, 15 minutes possibly, yeah. Jamie, but... Two, well, for the submarines, well, it'll well, last well, a bit longer. <laughs> well, we'll be nice. We'll say two weeks. What are Everything we going to do? Everything gets scoured off the surface and then the subs just finish the war. <laughs> or possibly one well, of them misses the transmission, comes back from its patrol six months later and wonders why everybody's on fire and, and glowing. Um, but, I mean, uh, the, this SSNX proposal and obviously the proposal for it to carry a lot more torpedoes and potentially new torpedoes is it's both interesting but also simultaneously not tremendously surprising given you know, historical trends but seriously i mean it's the torpedoes the weapon of the last war um mm. what again shouldn't they be carrying a drone that carries a torpedo well if shouldn't they if, be if they're if they're following along the lines, or I mean, this is obviously taking a a little bit of a step. But if they're following along the lines of British submarines, which uh, I mean, I know the American subs can launch harpoons from their tubes, but the British subs, uh, both well, the Swiftures, Trafalgars, and now the Astutes also have the capability of basically launching anything you can fit into their magazines um, via the tubes. Whereas the US has historically preferred to have separate VLS systems for the missiles and keep the tubes for the torpedoes, albeit, as I said, you can launch harpoons right. through there as well. Um, if if they're planning on taking a slightly more British route, maybe they'll still have a VLS system, but also, you know, have their tubes capable of firing miss missiles and other things that will fit into a 21 inch or however many inch diameter. Um, steel tube then in theory we should although the the news release is talking about torpedoes perhaps we should be thinking more in terms of distinct ammunition units whether yes. that be torpedoes missiles drones etc it's more about increasing the overall magazine space so than basic basically it becomes a instead of a vls a hls yes <laughs> yeah. horizontal launch system <clears throat> in which you could pack whatever you need. Yeah, yeah. and I know we know a, in like a, in the, a quad pack of harpoons, for example. <laughs> yeah, I mean we know in the Cold War that they have, and they probably still do have these long, long duration offboard decoys that they can fire that will go motoring around pretending to be a submarine for a long period of time, and which is effectively a small underwater drone, mm. um, yes. albeit you know weighing in at five around about three to five tons probably not so much on the small but um i i would personally suspect that those kinds of things probably have a, a degree of potential development opportunity because they were designed specifically as as, as big decoys but in theory especially given compacting modern technology there's nothing that theoretically prevents you from taking one of those things and okay you're not going to be able to fit a heavyweight torpedo on it because tube size limitations but you could in theory have something developed with modern tech that has similar capabilities but in less volume which leaves some volume over at which point you could either fit 
possibly a short heavyweight torpedo on the front or possibly a cluster of lighter weight torpedoes um, in the amidships, which you could then launch the thing as an offboard weapons platform and have it motor on around and then it detaches or launches its its payload away from you. I mean, what's what's the size of the tubes these days? Eighteen inch or is it? Uh, it's, well, the World War One it was twenty one inch. Um, that was the heavy, standard heavyweight torpedo. Um, these days, these well, the Sea Wolves carry twenty six and a half inch tubes. Right. Okay. Um, although the the ADCAP is still a twenty one inch weapon, um, and then uh, the Virginias apparently carry helpfully somebody has decided to list them as millimeters which makes no sense because the us doesn't use that okay so the virginias are using 21 inch tubes so the virginias can use ad caps because they fit in the tubes whereas the sea wolves have much larger tubes but can't basically they're, they're most of their weapons are sabot down to accommodate but it does mean that again, they can again my problem and here the is are 21 inch as well again my problem here is is what we raised what i raised the last time we just discussed future of submarines why have one-shot torpedoes when you can have multi-shot drones if yeah but the, uh, admittedly the difficulty is recovering them and recharging them to reuse them um mm. but i don't know i mean it, it the, the 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 benefit of that especially on a nuclear powered submarine to have munitions that aren't completely expended each and every time you fire them doesn't surely one way of getting um, more munitions on board a submarine is to be able to reuse those munitions and not just simply stack another row of um, torpedo racks somewhere in the hull i mean i'd say yes potentially if they can develop a system that does that however you'd also have to account for the fact that occasionally even with this sort of multi-purpose reusable payload you might lose one it might oh, yeah. just go it, it'll go off doing its own thing sure. or it might get destroyed so coupling that with an increased overall payload is probably for the best i suppose yeah but i i, I just i just do think that the era of the one shot wonder when it comes to things like torpedoes mm. is again old thinking it's you know that we're, we're now in a world of artificial intelligence drones uh all these other wonderful sort of gizmos and gadgets that can be slotted into the, something the size of a smartphone, which when you pair it with a 21-inch torpedo, um, kind of opens up whole new realms of potential. Yeah, um, I mean, you've got... There's all sorts of things you could do. I mean, with the 26-and-a-half-inch tube, you could launch, as we mentioned earlier, kind of a remote-operated weapons platform, which could, to a certain degree, be recoverable. Um, but you've also got, I suppose, you could do a number of things. You've got, as we've mentioned in other episodes, things like the Russian sub that carries the Lasharik mini sub, which is probably the the biggest iteration of that you could do. Um, but as as well as that, you've got, and this might sound a little bit nuts, but I think there may be a certain element of logic to it. When you look at certain ballistic missile subs like the Deltas, they have a big hump on the back. Now, obviously, that hump is there because the missiles are too long to otherwise fit in the pressure hull. But 
it shows, especially with some of the later iterations of that humpback design, that you can actually get a pretty quiet design whilst retaining this big fairing on the back. Yes. So potentially what you could do, because obviously if, if you launch something even from a 26 and a half inch tube, it's being very optimistic to say you can recover it back into said tube. <laughs> Look, you know, the whole point here I is the whole point here is 26 inch tube 660 millimeters on the other side well the whatever only, there's, there's only one site which seems to call them six and a half, 26 and a half so i well, we're honestly not sure but i would actually but prefer big, bigger than 21 <laughs> yeah the, the thing is the bigger the the i i the reason i was looking at was i was thinking actually that sounds like a fairly decent size because if you've got that's a fairly decent space to accommodate things like those mini torpedo, uh, like smaller lightweight torpedoes in a bit larger torpedo. Because well, if you have got 660 millimeters to play with, you can actually install quite a decent cluster. We're not talking one or two, we're talking four or five. But what I was thinking is that if you have one of these fairings on the back, then you can launch your drone, offboard weapons platform, whatever you want to call it. You can yeah. launch it conventionally from your tube. But then when it comes to recovering it, instead of trying to have to thread the needle, you could basically have the fairing as a kind of receiving area. So the thing can yep. swim up to you in a recoverable formation. And then almost kind of James Bond style, you recover it into this much larger bay, which can then be closed behind you, obviously in an area where you're relatively quiet. You can then bring that aboard because we know from the Virginia Block 5s that the US Navy is not opposed to having, you know, well, we know from that and to the existence of ballistic missile subs that the US Navy is not adverse to having weapons deployed behind the sail area in the mid mid section of the hull. You can then bring it, bring it in for reconditioning, repair, reload, whatever. And then all you in theory need to do to be able to then reuse that weapon would be a single conveyor tube running from amidships to the forward torpedo room so you could feed it back into the torpedo room to for, for reuse later on and yeah, but you see the, the point here though is, is i'm you know i just want to see the japanese eye class back <laughs> launch the launching drones instead of uh, questionable float planes yeah. Surface, no, we do not want the, the I-300s back. Surface, open oh, the hangar up, Lord. launch the drone. Yep, problem solved. But um, you see, no, no, so, no, the problem isn't solved because you just have the surface. So, at I, least, it, see, well, at least I didn't suggest the suffering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you could put a hyper mm. velocity gun on the front. You could put a, <laughs> a rail gun. Or the M1. We're talking about the X1. No, the M1. The X1 had, twi- had twin 5.5s. Oh, that was vaguely sensible. M1 had the 12-inch. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, was it, was it, Or was it Sir Koof? Sorry, you're right. Sir Koof, yeah. Sir Koof was the... Uh... Yeah, yes. and then you've got the M2 with its uh, attempt to be the I-400s before the I-400s, which didn't the, end But the point well. is, you know, again, it's... Those concepts failed for obvious reasons now, mm. looking back, but... That was an era when things were changing fast and those vessels were built to test those ideas. Um, we laugh at them in hindsight, but we only learned the lessons because they were built. Now, we, we, we are obviously due to the costs of these things, not <coughs> terribly willing to um, experiment 
with uh, new designs and radical ideas, but um, you know that's why we're stuck with a 1950s concept attack submarine, mm. uh, which is essentially what the SSNX to me sounds like. I mean, I, you know, admittedly, that might not be that bad if it has got big 26-inch torpedo tubes that um, aren't just firing torpedoes. Mm. That does change the equation quite considerably. But um, if they are only thinking in terms of torpedoes, well, then, yeah, okay, big torpedoes go, go a long way. You've fired your torpedoes, turn around and go home. Um, yeah. I mean, what I think of all the things that to come out of this brief, I think the fact that they're going back towards a seawolf-sized hull, to me, is the greater takeaway of things. Um, I, I mean, the magazine capacity is is useful, but the the simple fact is that the Virginia's as capable as they are, and let's not get away from that, the Virginians are pretty capable. One, the US Navy has been gradually expanding them, and the Block 5 is making them considerably longer, amongst other things. But two, the whole point of the Virginias was that they are, to a certain extent, peace dividend ships or subs. They were, the Seawolf was supposed to be the next latest and greatest US sub, but they were held to be too expensive. Uh, when the Cold War came to an end and the Virginias were supposed to be their smaller, cheaper, easier to build derivatives. And again, hilariously enough, going back to the research I've been doing in the ironclad era recently, that's exactly the same kind of thing you see, you know, Warrior is launched and everyone goes, ooh, and then everyone goes, yes, but that was very expensive. How about we build some smaller, slightly less capable, but much cheaper derivative versions? And how many times does this keep happening? And every single time, it turns out that, barring a few but, random exceptions, the smaller, cheaper derivative is actually a terrible idea and a waste of money. And you end up going back to building the full fat version before too long. When 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 you actually have to start thinking about fighting it was something like vaguely like a peer level opponent the the second class battleship if you like is is a luxury for a naval hegemon that doesn't actually think it's going to be challenged by anybody true it's not only that it's a luxury for well if you think about it, the second class battleship is the thing you have to police stations where you don't think you're going to be facing anyone who's actually going to build anything. Yes, which goes back to the you're not actually facing a peer opponent because a peer yeah. opponent can can go out to foreign stations with ships just as capable as your own, as you know, as Admiral Craddock found at Coronel. It's it's a concept yeah. that works, concept that possibly works with surface ships. I'm not so sure about submarines. Mm. And I'm not sure it works with surface ships. I would I, I would argue there is I would argue would it really have cost that much I, I suppose possibly in the time of warrior we're talking about yes it could have done because each ship is basically an individual unique thing but there is part of me which would argue if you're building two class a ship isn't it cheaper to build more of the bigger one of the better one in terms of design and cost to build them building the two class ships. And I know the Royal Navy is currently doing this for the Type 31s versus the Type 26s. Mm. And I know that's because the Type 31s are going to be the forward deployed ships. And they basically build them and to be forward built, deployed built, and easy to maintain. And built for, but not with. Yeah. yeah. Well, 
This is this is the thing. It's like when you're building a smaller, effectively second class derivative, you're e you're either one of two things. It shows up most commonly, as I said, with a, a global hegemon that's just going. Yes, well, we already have a big battle fleet, but we we want to make some notional mouth noises towards cost savings for our foreign stations, um, or you also end up with that concept showing up in overcommitted navies where the government has said you must do this 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 and this you must guard this place this place and this place and deter these people these people and these people are also you know here's 5p i found down the back of the sofa that's what you've got to fund it have fun um and so you end up with a navy that you know to, to have a full-fledged full fat frontline combatant They've got a choice of we can either build a certain number of them, then we can't cover all the commitments we've been saddled with, or we can cover all the commitments, but we have to cut short our what we actually want and end up building a bunch of smaller, cheaper ships to run around all over the place. Because, I mean, again, you winding the clock slightly more forward, if you look at the run up to World War One, when the Royal Navy, OK, it was still fighting the Treasury for a budget, but it paid basically had roughly the budget it actually wanted and you saw armored cruisers battle cruisers and the early light cruisers like the town class the world war one town class being built in large numbers and the town class showed up at jutland as a fleet unit and the town class showed up in the indian ocean hunting down um emden obviously the first hmas sydney the town class was kind of everywhere glasgow was at coronel and at the falkland islands because that the the town class was the standard, you know, light armored or light cruiser of the Royal Navy, and it did all the things. Um, but then you wind forward to the, sorry, drills, wind forward to the next town class in the 1930s, and at that point you find a Royal Navy that is somewhat overcommitted compared to the budget that the government is giving it and also restricted by various treaties in its particular case and that's where you find the leanders and the arethusers popping up not because the royal navy particularly wanted and the, the crown colonies yes and the crown colonies thereafter it's not that the navy particularly wanted them they i mean they did think that a seven to eight thousand ton cruiser was probably about the right balance for trade protection but given that everyone else was building ten thousand tonners they would have much preferred to just be able to build the town class in mass batch production but that wouldn't have given them the number of holes they needed and they didn't have the money to do it so they had to settle for less um and you know these days the royal navy uh, as good or whatever as the type 31 or type 32 might be they're not a type 26 and they're not a type 45 and or a type 83 yeah, or a potential future type 83 and we know the royal navy wanted more type is, 45s, is, is, more type 26s, and they're not getting it. Is that actually progressed in any way, shape, or form yet, type 83, or is it still just a... It's, it's still a notional... It's still a no... Well, I think at the moment it's a... It's a future pro... It's it's a vaguely nailed-down future program, i.e. this is what the successor is going to be. We're going to call it a type 83, but it's not really progressed beyond that other than a general mission concept. There is a lot of discussion and the thing going on, but they know they don't have to make a decision really for two to three years as to his actual form. I mean, they're, so they're actually just going barely, around and looking at stuff. So they've only just barely sorted out what the Type 31 is going to have, and there's still 
working on what the Type 32 is going <laughs> to exactly ba- look like. So. Basically, what's going to happen is the Type 45 midlife refit office is going to transform into the Type 83 office. So once the Type 45 midlife refit is over, those people will then, all the people that are sort of billeting assignment will then turn into the Type 83. Because this is how, so the Type 83 has sort of started off in that there's a few people in the office and they're starting to the concept, but it won't really get going until slowly the people come out of the Type 45 midlife program as that's run through and transfer into the Type 83 office. office and that's where you'll get the growth and that's when you get things done. That's it's it. it it makes sense, but you also have to consider this is something which they're not expecting to start entering service for at least a decade hence. So there's a... Hmm. So back to torpedoes, what can Australia bring to the table? Test firing. Operate, operational environment testing. I mean, <laughs> to, to, be, no, to be honest, like the... The Royal Navy has a relatively small um, group of ships, of subs. So although I'm sure astutes can and have been operating relatively recently in the South China Sea and that kind of area. One actually turned up in Australia for a visit, Mm. didn't it? But astutes overall have to cover the South Atlantic, keep an eye on the Argentinians. Um, the Mediterranean to play nice with NATO, the North Atlantic, North Sea, Arctic to keep an eye on the Russians, um, plus going over to play with the US Navy on exercises and also the South China Sea. So there's not necessarily always going to be an astute in the South China Sea. And even if there is, it's only going to be one or two. Um, whereas, and although the US Navy has a lot more subs, again, they are all over the place. Whereas with the uh, Collins class at the moment, the Australian Navy, they're pretty much <laughs> they're pretty much exclusively operating in the South China Sea and Indian Ocean. So I would actually bet that as a apologies again for the noise, um, as a navy, Australia's probably got one of the more extensive sort of data cases as to what exactly you're looking at in terms of sea conditions, pressures, temperatures, uh, ocean bed levels and terrain, etc. for the likely operational environment as compared to anybody else. Because Dr. Clark, explain why we raise this question. (laughs) Because it seems to be that the heavyweight torpedo could well be an AUKUS project. In fact, the uh, uh, actual the the betting I have sort of going on is that whilst I think in the end any nuclear submarine procured will probably have uh, will even if assembled in Australia, which is a potential thing, a potential thing, but will take a few years to prepare for. It, 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 it will be, be uh, he will have a reactor with a British accent, and it will have systems with an American accent. That is my bet. Well, it's 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 starting to look increasingly less likely that it's going to be built in the US if they're going to be busily replacing these um, uh, sub their entire their sub, submarine sub, fleet. substandard uh, steel. So yeah, anyway, it's either that or going to be built in the UK, but we'll we'll see that. Uh, the, 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 we'll talk about that one as an option. That depends if the British government tries to continue to pretend that we don't need any more subs, uh, and then we've still only got roughly two slots free. 
So leaving that to one side, there is other, uh, also under the AUKUS apparently for the heavyweight torpedo, because I think for some reason the Americans are thinking if we can give our targeting and sensor systems into this and the British just bring spearfish and just go, yeah, we want it to do 72 knots. We don't want anything to be able to run away from this thing. <laughs> um, we're fairly certain that we don't want anything in the sea to be able to escape from this torpedo. Uh, it's close that- enough to launch it. Well, well, that's the thing. If we can get work on getting a lot... Spearfish is very good technology, but let's be honest. You could do better now. And you can use it using the data and information for operating it. You can do better and could produce something which is... Well, let's imagine, talk about the earlier scenario. Let's say we've got a 26-inch torpedo tube, 660 millimeter. And... I have no idea why, but my audio and video settings just no. for some reason. We still see and hear you. That's fine. Anyway, so let's say you do get the 26 inch torpedo. But let's say it is carrying these mini torpedoes. Now, if those mini torpedoes use a spearfish style engine that can get them up to 72 knots, then they're almost a kinetic kill on a submarine, let's be honest. And that suddenly makes a lot of sense because that becomes your ambush predator. Yes, you've got a longer range, larger vehicle, which gets them to the target. Maybe you send a pair of them and they go out hunting. They find the enemy submarine. It's bracketed between the two of them. Each one launches, let's say, four of their six torpedoes they carry, keeping two back just in case they miss. It's got eight mini spearfish, 72 knots coming in on it. There is no submarine on Earth which is going to manage to avoid that. I mean, you could try a crash surface and go straight up, but the odds are you're still going to get killed. I mean, I'd I'd suggest a slightly different version thereof, because the thing about the spearfish is, yes, it's got an incredibly high maximum speed. It's the fastest... As a prop dash pump jet driven torpedo in service. <laughs> this is fun. <laughs> if anyone wants the description of Drax's face at the moment, if you ever seen the episode of Big Bang Theory where Sheldon is trying to talk and they start talking over him at lunch hour and he's holding it in and he's gradually turning purple, this is it. And at some point, I do expect to have Drac shouting out to the builders, you promise not to do that anymore! <laughs> oh, well. Uh, or, or, it, or he can invent a silent drill. Yes. But no, it's uh, the my, my idea would be, you know, Spearfish has this very high top speed. But it, because it has this high top speed, and therefore a lot of, uh, fair bit of fuel, fairly energetic fuel, it can also go a long way at slower speeds. So it has range. So my proposal would be it to have what I would call a, an optionally expendable weapon. So you have a spearfish style main body scaled up to 26 inches, which has a warhead um, of sorts, probably about the same size as the current spearfish, maybe a fraction smaller, who knows. Um, and you have I'm, I'm going to take some inspiration from the Star Streak missile. 
So you have clustered amidships, two, three or four smaller torpedoes. And you motor on out at low to medium speeds with your whole weapons platform. And then once you get in range of your target, these smaller projectiles detach. But instead of being conventional prop powered ones, actually use the um, super cavitating rocket technology that we know was around in the Cold War. The Russians had some of them and the NATO forces experimented with and fire off those things now yes granted one of the problems with a super cavitating 300 knot torpedo is that you basically have zero guidance um that it, it's just going to go in a straight line and maybe some marginal course changes but if you've got close enough using your primary carriage uh unit that's going to matter a lot less and you're firing three four three or four of them in a cluster so they go rocketing off quite literally through the water and hopefully you hit something. So it's kind of a cross between Star Streak and Hedgehog. Um, and then your off your your offboard platform can be monitoring the results of all of this. And if you score successful a successful hit or successful hits, then the sub obviously that you've hit has is hopefully now crippled or dead. So all well and good, your big platform can return home. But if it is only partially damaged or somehow you manage to miss then you have your off-ball platform that still has its warhead that can then switch up to maximum speed, Spearfish-style 70, 80 knot speed, and go motoring in for the final kill. And it does have full guidance systems and options and will have been able to track the course of what the target sub is doing to set up an optimal kill position with the obviously the objective that because it's got this, this high-capacity fuel in it, if it it turns out that no, actually the, the sub was killed by the, the sub munitions. Then at low speed, it can still, it still got the capability of turning around and motoring off and heading back home for recovery. And you came up with the ideal name, sub munition. Mm. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I, you know, again, when you've got the space mm. to launch something like that and you know, maybe, maybe you're, you know, if we do, go with a 26 inch torpedo um, tube then perhaps that allays my fears of you know um, re repeating world war ii submarines <laughs> and you, you actually do get as you say the um, ability to mix and match and experiment and put all sorts of weird and wonderful toys in those uh, multi-purpose launch tubes yeah yeah, I think it's that is um, the thing. <clears throat> it's, if you can, this is probably the point I keep coming back to is that actually the larger you make the tubes, the more options you have. Because yes, you can scale things down. But the difference between a 21 inch torpedo, 533 millimeters, and a 26 inch or 660 millimeters is quite a significant one from a perspective of constructing something. That 130, that, that 130 millimeters gives you a lot. We all know, it's sort of, uh, you know, it, it gives you a tremendous capability for fuel, for all sorts of things. If you want to make an extended range summary, extended range torpedo, as we're talking about, and basically a launch vehicle, do, it's going to need to be able to carry that fuel. Yes, we can make energy engines more efficient and all these things we can do. To your point. There is a thing. But it's still going to need to cover that, carry that fuel. It's still going to need space. 
And also, if you're going to make it refuelable, you're going to need to have mechanisms for it to be refueled inside it. I, you're going to have to have a safety, and you're not going to want that fuel to leak out while it's running because that's going to slow its stop its range. So you're going to need to be that's going to be need to be a pressured system, a system which is capable of withstanding the pressure of the water that the torpedo is operating at. So all this is going to take space, and that's what you get. Yeah, that's what you have to get, and that. Mm. It's, it will be interesting to see what they do do, whether they do go for a 26 inch or whether they go for a 24 inch or even, you know, or they try and make a 21 inch work. But I think if they try and make a 21 inch work, then the outboards, the offboard systems and all those things are going to be minimal. It's going to be able to try because we think about what a current torpedo has to have crammed in it to get that to work. There yeah, isn't I... much more we can fit into a 21 inch space at current levels of technology. And yes. Yeah. I know people will start promising, go, ah, yes, but miniaturization, we can we can make these things smaller. We can make these things smaller. The one thing I can tell you about history, there is a long history of it. Arm salesmen promising they can make things better and they're not being able to do. If we consider the whole automation of the automa automation saga of heavy wep of sort of heavy A weapons in the 1920s and 30s, and someone was commenting recently, oh yeah, that, that it, it was shown that the quickest way you could do was roughly 140 millimeter, and yet everyone keeps going for 155 and 150 and all the these things to try and get a dual purpose weapon. And he, and I sit there and go, well, yes, but that's because every all the arm salesmen keep promising they can increasingly automate the process of loading those one five guns, which five five guns, which then gives you a lot of capability versus a one forty millimeter weapon, which you want. But in reality, I think I think the interesting thing is that. If you if you look back in terms of sort of trying to track where we are at the moment <clears throat> in terms of previous naval history, we're actually in some ways in three different eras at once. So winding winding back, I'd say in terms of uh, having identified who is the most likely opponents on both sides of the equation, we're probably in what I would probably term the 1908 to 1910 era, where you know, back then, pretty much everyone in the UK had figured out Germany was the biggest threat, and Germany was pretty much side-eyeing the UK, even though they, apart from some in, in some internal memos, they hadn't explicitly decided they were going to have a go at each other. And so politically, we're kind of in that region where everybody is looking at China and going, China is the threat, although for the most part in public, they're kind of trying to not outright say we're preparing for war against you even though a lot of the internal documents in the military are um are more so, than likely out of focusing on china but also i wouldn't be surprised if a fair number in especially in the nato ones are also looking at russia and going hmm. yeah there's always the trouble when you're dealing with a gambler they could gamble too far but we, we we're kind of we, we are in that phase of like we we pretty much know where the the other side is it, <laughs> But in terms of actual build program, in terms of dealing with that in and building ships that will counter, hopefully counter the enemy, sorry, we are, 
we're kind of in, I would say, maybe in the 1903, 1904 period. You know, shipbuilding programs are ongoing. But they are, they, they haven't, there hasn't been an HMS Dreadnought moment. There hasn't been a kind of, this is what we're now going to build en masse just yet. We're, they're still messing around with a few odds and ends. But then in terms of technology, we're probably actually closer to being back to the 1890s because we're in that era of we have an established set of weapons that have been kind of equipping our ships for a generation or two back but there's a lot of expanded capabilities on the horizon and no one's quite sure where they're going to go are we going to go into quick firing guns are we going to go into bigger guns are we going to go into longer barrel weapons are we going to go into dynamite guns as how does the torpedo boat figure into all of this it's that kind of slight era of uncertainty when you know previously we've had missiles with guns as backup and now potentially guns might be taking more of forefront are we going hypersonic are we going with off-board weapons platforms how where are drones going to figure into all of this we're at that kind of decision point that they were in in the 1890s um but i suppose it's just going to be a case of you know when where and when are all those three phases of of where we're at going to align and uh are it's, we then going to march forward to our 1914 is the modern w warrior the zumwalt mm. or some derivative thereof Yeah, that's going to be an interest. That, that could be an interesting paper in the in a few years once we've got a clearer idea of what everyone's building. Be Zumwalt, modern gloire or warrior, depending <laughs> depending on how everything shakes out. Honestly, uh, the the thing is, because um, I don't know about uh, probably our listeners may or may not do this if they follow us on Twitter, but. There is a gentleman called Bijon on Twitter, Benjamin, um, who keeps messaging us because he's been inspired by talking about the Zumwalts and bidding hypersonic missiles and all those things to keep sending us these designs, which he does of the Zumwalts. And the more and more I look at those designs, this is going to sound really strange to say, the more and more realistic it starts to look to me as not a what if, which I know winds up Jamie, but as... Uh, why didn't they keep building this? Because it seems to me it was the obvious change. Right then, rail guns aren't working. We're going for hypersonics. Let's build some with a hyper. Uh, these, this is the only hull we've got, which is under construction, which we can build more of without costing ourselves an arm and leg, because we've already paid all the freaking costs developing it. And we've got all the production facilities. We've got all the machine tools set up. We've got everything set up. Let's just take out the rail guns and stick in hypervelocity cells and we can start you know even if we haven't got the hypervelocity missiles we know what how big the cells are broadly going to be we can build them and then when we have the missiles we can put them in there it seems to me one of the most stupid short-sighted inane decisions made in recent years is to stopping production on the zumwalts they're expensive Yes, they're expensive, but they're expensive for a reason. You built three. You were planning 20. Uh, the first three of any class is going to be expensive. Just look at the Type 26s, the cost of the first batch versus the cost of batch two. Look at the Astutes, the cost of, well, the Astute class are a great example. Because boats one to three, because they mucked around with things, were a 50%, 8% increase in cost. 
Boat four was a 16% increase in cost. Boat five, 3% decrease in cost. Boat six, a further 3% decrease in cost. Boat seven is potentially going to be a further 3% decrease in cost because you get used to building them. So even the more most expensive things, actually, they cost a lot to build the initial runoff and then they get cheaper. So just at the moment, the Zumwalts were going to get cheaper and you could have started churning out a destroyer with hyper velocity missile VLS tubes and all the capability ready to go. They cut them. And they build more Burks, which I love the Arleigh Burke design. I really do. But it is a 40 year old design. That is straining to try and take the new technologies. That is straining under the weight of all that's being expected of it. It is supposed to be both the top, top tier end combatant of the US Navy and the middle to lower end tier combatant of the of the US Navy. And you cannot expect one design to do every freaking thing on that list. You, you forget the power you forget the power of bureaucracy, because don't don't forget, you know, during the 2010s. I don't care about the power of bureaucracy. I will borrow one of your axes. <laughs> yeah, but you forget you forget, Dr. Clark, during the 2010s, the F-15 was almost Schrodinger's fighter jet. You know? The F-15 at certain congressional hearings was an absolutely top of the line, fully combat capable um, air superiority fighter that with a few up, a few minor upgrades here and there would continue to ensure US air dominance for the next 15 to 20 years, as I near enough quote from one particular congressional hearing. Simultaneously, in uh, combat exercises with India, the F-15 was so hopelessly obsolescent that upgraded MiG-21s using modern using uh, technology that was purported to be slightly more modern than what the F-15Cs had on hand, could quite easily run over the F-15s. And therefore, it was absolutely imperative that we, the US Air Force needed it, uh, either restarted F-22s or an accelerated F-35 by. And those reports were written by pretty, well, they were written by the same organization and almost pretty much by the same person. It's just, you know, bureaucracy has this wonderful power of presenting something as hopelessly obsolete and in need of replacement while simultaneously being the best thing since sliced bread, just depending on what they want. It has nothing to do with actual reflections on reality. And, that, and it's the same thing with the Burks. The Burks, depending, oh. on, depending on what day it is at the congressional defense hearings, the Burks are either, you know, the absolute superior uber unit of all time or potentially a bunch of floating rust buckets that desperately need replacing with anything that's not an lcs um so and its true capabilities are probably somewhere in the middle of all that yeah i mean with, with the zumwaltz i do the, kind Bur the burke is a very good mid-level thing and when you if you've got the constitution the the, the the thing is if you kept the Zumwalts even in low rate production and kept a, one of them or two of them constantly sort of just one coming into service every couple of years to keep them uh, to, to give you the high level unit and sort of to replace the Ticos in the high level unit role. And you had brought the constitutions in, then keeping the Burks going until you figure out a mid level replacement for them would be fine because the Burks could focus in on the role they were needed to do. But expecting them to do everything, expecting them to fulfill everything is asking more than the Burks were A, designed for and B, than any ship really is capable of being designed for. 
the my, my the only qualifier I put on that is I don't necessarily agree with the idea of keeping the Zumwalt production lines going at the time because the Zumwalts as a whole as a design yes they are very capable you can probably turn them into something very useful nowadays but the Zumwalts violated the single biggest tenant of the HMS Warrior principle, which is that they launched when they had absolutely no idea whether pretty much any of the weapons or sensors they were going to put on it would actually work. I um, wouldn't call that a fault of the Zumwalts. I would call that a fault of the American bureaucracy and especially a certain U.S. defense secretary who we will not name, who seemed to want to put er turn everything into a Christmas tree and make it sparkle with stars. Yeah, um, yes, uh, to a degree. Yeah, I mean, it is yes, it is a bureaucracy and design failure. But uh, at the end of the day, you know, the Zumwalt is out there with, initially, especially early on, with a good chunk of its actual combat systems being vaporware or turning out not to actually work as advertised. So, in the environment that they were being built in, I don't think I, I if I was in the position of the US Navy, I would not have continued production of the Zumwalt because I'm basically building a bunch of interesting looking expensive silhouettes that don't actually add all that much to my combat capability if they'd gone if they'd either done the sensible thing and made sure the weapon systems actually worked before they started building them or if they'd gone for a kind of a halfway house and said we're building this fancy new modern stealth destroyer but we're just going to fill it with massive numbers of what we've already got i.e mark 41s then sure maybe. i would have kept i kept kept yeah. the thing open and and kept the production line going and maybe then you could use the infamous fitted for but not with for things like the mark 57 vls and all the other stuff but you can you know you look at the size of a zumwalt you could quite easily go we're not going to have an ags we're just going to cover the front in mark 41s we're going to have our little helicopter facilities at the back then we're going to keep these void spaces down the side for our newer shinier vls and we're going to install those once we know the system works. Under those paradigms, sure, keep the Zumwalt production line going because you've effectively got a bigger, better, stealthier Burke. But as they were at the time, mm, yeah, no, I, 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 I would have curtailed their production. I mean, just trying to stopgap it with further developments of the Burks is probably not the world's best decision, but it they it's the lesser of two evils at that point. Uh, the, the, there wasn't really an, I don't think there was really a win scenario once they decided to build a ship before figuring out if the guns actually fired. Well, you see, the thing is, I would have gone, I have to admit, we knew they were vaporware before uh, the, the AGS, etc. was vaporware pretty much almost as, uh, as soon as they were, uh, when they were building them. So I would have honestly, from batch for uh, from the fourth unit on, have done exactly that. I'd have possibly left the fifty Mark fifty seven VLS in there, but I would have replaced the AGS with Mark forty ones, and gone. Well, it's got a whole load of Mark forty ones, and the Mark fifty seven I'm going to get working soon. And then let's be honest, the Mark fifty seven did get working quite quickly. And then you've got something which is frankly an extremely capable unit but and that would have taken how do i put this a modicum of sense because instead of cap and bravery because instead of cancelling it which was the easy option and i can see your logic it would have been case of going 
admits that the AGS is something we're going to have to work out. So we're leaving it on the first three units. But subsequent units are going to be fitted for, not with. And while they're fitted for, not with, they're going to be fitted with Mark 41 VLS, which you could have fitted into those spaces. A lot of Mark 41 VLS. And that means you don't have to do what you did with the Burks. You don't have to keep them going. And that buys you time to come up with a better design to replace the Burks. And I think this is a problem we'll be facing not just with America, but I think in other navies as well, because, again, something the, uh, something we go on about a lot and we've been talking about a lot over the last year is our rating system. And the reason the rating system matters, and I got into an interesting discussion with someone who was basically commenting below one of my videos uh, that they didn't like the idea that we counted a sea sector missile. VLS, which could just launch a C sector as one, well, you know, well, they counted the number of cells rather than counting the theoretical capacity of, let's say, a Mark 41, or that we should count those smaller cells as a half rather than a one, because it then theoretically gives, as I did, I showed this in, this in my Type 26 presentation, theoretically, it makes the Royal Navy's um, in the current in its config, current configurations, it gives the makes the Royal Navy's Type 26 a third rate because it carries so many sea scepters and can carry so many of them. Whereas, because uh, it can carry 48 and it carries 24 Mark VL, uh, Mark 41 cells, so it has 72 cells. So it's a third rate. That technically has sounds more than the Canadian surface combat. But this person was coming back going, well, you know, the Canadian could equivalent be a first rate because it could load all its cells up with quad pack cam or quad pack sea sparrow. And I was going, that doesn't make it a first rate. But but it's carrying all these missiles, which are the same as the missiles on the sea set. Thing. And I go, well, it's not changing the number of cells. It's kind of like taking if we go back with the reason the rating system exists is if you go back to the early cannon, so, uh, uh, the cannon on the age of sail ships, yes. Some of the bigger cannon could sometimes fit lots of lots of smaller balls in there. But that doesn't mean that they then count for four or five. And, and you, also, did, you also didn't count the cannonades, the, the smaller cannons no. on the upper deck as part of the ship's total number. It's, it's, it's you're trying to make the anti-aircraft armament of the battleship count towards the battleship's number of guns. Yeah. Yeah, so, okay, King George V, 10, 14 inch, or is it, um, you know, 120 barrels because it's got mm. a bunch of pom-poms? Um, no, you, you, you can't classify those pom-poms as being at their primary weapon system. And the thing is, what you have to make the point is, I would, I would call the Type 26 for the Royal Navy a third rate, anti-submarine warfare vessel whereas if i was talking about the canadian or the australian i'd probably call them a fourth or fifth rate general purpose vessel there is a difference in that designation but that tells me that one's got a large number of vls cells but it's anti-submarine warfare focused so that's focused. probably not going to so it's not going to be airy air defense. And the others have got a smaller number of cells, but they're more general purpose. So they could be carrying land attack, air defense, all those things. And that is how I would be talking. about. But if we look at current ships, once you start going through them, 
and I know we've done this discussion several times before, you get back to this long war scenario and this discussion we had right at the beginning about designing a submarine to take more torpedoes. If we look at these destroy these frigates and these ships we're building, how many of them do we think need to take more VLS cells? And even more importantly, how many of them do we think go to sea with those VLS cells full in normal routine operations? None of them. <laughs> I would imagine. But yeah, again, jack of all trades, master of none. So um, I yeah, we seem to be obsessed with being able to say that this ship is air warfare, being able to say this ship is land attack, being able to say this ship is anti-submarine, when it actually it can't do any of them very well because it just fires off a few shots and then it can no longer do anything. Whereas the, it's uh, where, politics whereas, over reality. Yeah, whereas your anti-submarine... presentation, not substance. Whereas your anti-submarine frigate with its... What was it? The fourth rate can actually sustain that operation. It can do its job for a long time and well. Admittedly, though, it probably shouldn't do it close to land. <laughs> anyway, I guess once again we've come back to our usual um, browbeating points, and I'm, mm -hmm. I guess we're preaching to the converted. So it's probably a time to pull the plug. Mm -hmm. Well, yes, but we do have one more topic to discuss. The, uh, well, briefly mention, acknowledge the fact that um, one of Queen Elizabeth's F-35s ended up in the drink recently. <laughs> um, but that some does report, sort of come back to the same theme. Some reports indicate that perhaps somebody left a rain cover on and the pilot realised that at the last minute tried to throttle down and ended up just sadly tipping over the front, <laughs> basically. It's the worst of both worlds. Um, we don't know that for certain. The only thing, well, the only two things we do know is one, unlike pretty much every other um, carrier aviation accident so, that's happened so far, there's been a extremely determined effort to recover the aircraft, whereas normally they're just left to sink to the bottom because obviously it's got a lot of interesting stealth technology in and even if we get it back in bits we definitely don't want somebody else with some interesting trawlers to go out and pick it up if they haven't already yes uh i mean um, I, you I, look I, at the I, look I at the tracks that queen elizabeth is making it seems to it, in the days after the accident it seemed to be very very interested in staying in roughly the same place <laughs> um yeah. but um, Let, let's face it, that aircraft is not going to be replaced anytime soon, if ever. No. no. And we're putting that against something like three swordfish dropping into the ocean because of dirty fuel in the run-up to the raid on Toronto. Mm. Now, something tells me that air groups now are not the same as what they were then. New. Um, and, I mean, you've got the, the other thing the, the the bright side i suppose to take into account is the fact that queen elizabeth once that fighter went and ended up in the sea it continued fly tops mm, so yeah. that that does give a certain degree of credence to the idea that it that this sort of rain cover or whatever may be the approximate cause of the accident because if they were worried about that it was an unknown factor or some fundamental flaw mm. with the f-35 they would have stopped all fly tops there and then until they could figure out what was going on whereas 
the fact they just kept on flying aircraft seems to indicate that they pretty much almost immediately knew what the problem and, had been. And that, and that kind of mistake, a systematic, systematic problem. That kind of mistake is incredibly common. Mm-hmm. It's nothing, you know, this, um, because it's human nature, it's fatigue, it's uh, efficiency, where you're running at 100% capacity all the time and the, the, often you're being required to run at 120% capacity, which means that you're going to make mistakes. Um, it's, yeah. It, how, how many aircraft w were lost due to accident in the Falklands? Um, well, I think, and, uh, I think anyway, Thanks. if you include helicopters, I think overall and overall losses due to mechanical failure and aircraft that were just sidelined because they needed extensive repairs due to, again, mechanical issues significantly exceeded the number of aircraft the Argentinians ever shot down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, look, I, I, I'm although I don't think many of them affected Steve George's squadron. <laughs> <laughs> it did still get to a fairly critical point um, before the replacements arrived. Mm. Oh, yeah. The, the illustrious in particular, if I remember correctly, was, you know, down to almost not being an effective combatant. Invincible, you mean? In, sorry, invincible, yeah. yes. Yeah. Illustrious and, was what turned up and they went, yeah! <laughs> we can go, we can home, go home, now. home now. We can go home now, yes. But um, so those were Harriers. Mm. Yeah, and, okay, um, they only had a couple of dozen of them. Yeah. Nothing's changed except for the price tag. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the fact that if a Harrier goes in the drink, no one's particularly obsessed about recovering the, the the remains to make sure that the Argentines don't uncover some great mechanical secret. Well, so let's be honest, that is also the South Atlantic, so it's a case of good luck if you can find it. The Mediterranean is a little bit shallower. Mm -hmm. Let's Hard be honest, past. the Mediterranean is the sea you don't want to yeah. drop things into. Ah, uh, look, I, I, but again, my concern is... <sighs> Can the Royal Navy and the Fleet Air Arm sustain normal operational losses with an F-35? Again, I have to. They haven't got any option. But, That's, well, it's not a case of uh, can we, it's a case of it's the only option. We either so, do or we don't operate. Well, the option, the other option is we actually buy a few more aircraft. <laughs> well, yeah, this but is that would thing. require the government to actually, are... you know, give some money over, so let's not hold our breath on that one. We are we are probably going to have to buy more aircraft, but the only uh, the, the the thing I've kept sort of thinking about is there are people who sit there and like to, to float out and go, well, we could make a carrier launch version of the Gripen, and I go, really? Have you looked at the uh, the uh, landing gear and landing arrangement and airframe of the Gripen? Do you imagine how much work you'd have to do to make that work? Yes, it's rust capable. It's rust strip capable, but so was the Spitfire. Uh, the Seafire was still not a great thing. And then they go, oh, well, you can do it with the Eurofighter. And you go, that's even worse. That's not even rust strip capable. No, no. The Eurofighter is the equivalent to, I don't know, trying to make the uh, Wellington bomber into a carrier aircraft. And I'm just being nicer and saying, not saying Lancaster for a reason here. Well, uh, the, the, the mosquito well. worked. Yeah, we we could also you could also take a leaf out of uh, USS Iowa's book with its little gun spotting drones in the nineties and put up a giant net 
and just catch them on the way in. You know, the, 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 the Typhoon was designed to be super maneuverable. It's designed to be able to match the Russian Cobra maneuvers. So clearly there is a potential to stick a gigantic catching net up. And as the pilot comes in, he just flares up vertically, soft belly lands into the net, and then the net brings brings him back to, back in. It, it's absolutely. Now that's, now that's the kind of creative thinking we need. Yeah. <laughs> that's the kind of creative thinking which ends up with a flight deck with a dent in it. I think, well, to be honest, I think it's the kind of creative thinking of why they stopped the rum ration. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the slightly sad thing is I was, I was about get to say, well, why don't we accelerate the Tempest program and just move all the F-35s over to the fleet air arms so they've got a few more aircraft in reserve. And then I realised, of course, we're already operating the RAF's F-35s off, of <laughs> off of the carriers because the fleet air arm isn't getting enough to run both carriers full on anyway so that's not actually gonna help i and mean it might going it, to end up with like four squadrons of f-35 as a front line and one reserve squadron so uh, one reserve training sort of and engineering squadron, squadron which basically means you can lightly equip both carriers or you could pack one yeah and so basically the other you can have two RAF squadrons and two royal fleet air arm squadrons so yeah, 48, 48 aircraft, which is comfortable carrying capacity. You probably could fit in more if you had them, but yeah, you can fully stock one carrier at the expense of we no longer have any F thirty fives in the UK. Then, then they're going to be you know the ones that have fallen over the side or have <laughs> have have gone splat into a seagull here and there. So very quickly, that's going to come down to one squadron each. That's when you bring in the operational conversion unit. <laughs> Anyway, uh, which is um, with that, Jamie. Remember, is actually what they did during the Falklands War. Yep, I know, I know. I, yes, but to be honest, it's an extremely good book. That one, by the way, was it? Um, yeah, eight hundred squadron. To be to be oh, honest, though, it'll be fine. It's what we did in the Falklands War is probably not a line anyone in the British military wants to hear, considering <laughs> that that large components of the thing. yeah, considering the large components of the British military effort in the Falklands War involved. Uh, you know, large quantities of araldite and um, <laughs> dragging things out of museums and patching everything together. Large, not not so much on the basis of creating a sustainable war machine, but creating a war machine that would last twenty four hours longer than the Argentine one. <laughs> twenty four hours longer. I thought it was a required was two hours longer. Just I, I, I think to get the people there to do the actual signing a, of the agreement. From a book I was reading recently, I think the big South Atlantic storms that would have crippled everybody's ability to fight kicked in seven hours after the Argentine surrender. So it's possibly even less 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 time than that. It's kind of it's not really a question of could the Falklands War have carried on longer. It's a question of it's more a statement of no. The Falklands War was ending that day, one way or another, <laughs> because nobody's going to fight in a South Atlantic hail and sleet squall. Oh, oh. That, it's probably time oh. to let Jamie go to bed. Yeah, yes. we have been torturing him for long enough. So take <laughs> care, everyone. Thank you, guys. There will be Thank one you. more episode of Bilge Pumps after this for this, for year, this year. Then we will be going on. Uh, well, there will also be a video special on Drax channel for Force Z. 
as Ed and what they uh, what they got to. But um, other than that, we will see you uh, after next week's episode. We'll we see you hoping, in the new year. Hoping to have um, who is for the special next episode? guest. We are hoping to have Andy Boyd to discuss. Well, Jamie would like to discuss the the, the battle for the South China Sea and various other plans and things for, from the interwar period but uh, we're probably also going to get him at some point to discuss all the various eastern operations and the british naval intelligence uh, british intelligence and, and british naval intelligence because he's right. written some wonderful books on those things and he has, we're but he's also, have him on for he's also in a very good position he's also in a very good position to be able to compare the history of the battle for the south china sea with the present of the south china sea so that's what yeah. i'm hoping to have his brains for it's going to be fun. All right. Well, thank you very much, See everyone. You thank you. See you then. Thank you. Bye. Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. <laughs>